Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and today I have three invitees, and I'd invite them to introduce themselves. Uh, Eva, perhaps you could start. Yeah. Yeah, good afternoon. My name is Eva Aladro. I'm a teacher at Complutense University in Madrid in Spain. I teach journalism and communication theories. And uh, I am also a writer and I like to write uh, yeah, poetry, but also I have a blog and yeah, I'm interested in many things right now. So uh, that's me. <laughs> welcome. Runa, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Yeah, uh, my name is Runa Tosen. I'm a Professor Emeritus at the Metropolitan University in Oslo on, on the Journalism Department. I have formally retired, but I'm still working there uh, and writing. And uh, I'm also an activist in Penn, Norway. And actually, since we're talking about Galton later, I used to work at the... In, International Peace Research Institute in Oslo many years ago. So I do some writing and not so much teaching anymore. <laughs> you lucky devil. Yeah. <laughs> and and our, our third guest, Joanne Porfa, uh, sorry, please introduce yourself. We usually sorry. speak in Spanish yet, Toby, so that's why you uh, you forgot about your English. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's you have no idea how hard it is for me to communicate in English all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm Joan Pedro Carañana. I'm an associate professor at Complutense University at the same department as Eva, and I work in the field of the political economy of media and communication, peace journalism, um, uh, propaganda studies, and anything related to communication and social change. And, uh, and it's a pleasure to speak with, uh, with the three of you, and thanks, Toby, for, uh, for this invitation. Well, thanks to all of you for being here. And our prime reason for convening is the sad news of the passing away of Johan Galtung, who was an influence on all four of us in different ways. And because of Runa's personal experience of Galtung and also his contributions via the Peace Research Institute, we're going to start with, with his recollections and thoughts. But as almost an introduction to that, Runa has kindly agreed to talk to us a bit about his experience in the last few days as an observer in the hearing in the British uh, High Court into the attempted extradition of Julian Assange. So, Runa, yeah. would you mind telling us a bit about your experiences as an observer? Yes, you must stop me if I go far beyond the bit, <laughs> because uh, this is a very uh, crucial moment. Uh, as you might know, the High Court in London for two days now, 20 to 21st, had the hearing for two judges who are going to decide if he is allowed to appeal to Supreme Court the already decision taken by the, the British uh, internal minister last summer that he could be extradited to the United States. I Guess you all know the story, so I will go, not go into the, the detail about that. But the, the I must say, I, I I was an observer for Penn Norway. We have been following this case for a while, and I follow it other hearings as well. And uh, it has been a disappointment for me to, 
with the British juridical systems because there has been so many problems, including uh, pure technical issues like getting access to the court, hearing what's going on in the court. Uh, and this was a scandal this time as well. Uh, there was some people allowed in the court and there was some quite many journalists in the side room who was going to watch and I was outside the beat. I hadn't access, but I had a video link. And the first day I was able to follow the whole day, but all the journalists sitting in the room next door, they couldn't hear anything because the microphone wasn't working. So 10 of them immediately just left in protest. So this is kind of, this is the most serious freedom of expression case for decades. So that in itself speaks for the quality and and the the safety. And yes, uh, the last time I had had the link, but suddenly it disappeared. Well, so much for that. The crucial issue is that uh, the, the defendant, proceeded on the case that he's a publicist and he must uh, be allowed to reveal as things from whistleblowers, as you know. And this is the dispute because the U.S. attorney says he's not a publisher. He's, not, he's just a criminal who tried to hack and everything. We know that kind of rhetoric. And the positive thing for me is that because since I heard the, the rulings uh, in in some uh, before is and I had the feeling previously that the judges they had decided their mind they just sitting listening they they were not seem very interested and they just you know but this time around actually there was a difference I don't know if it was the judges or whether they now see the seriousness of what they're actually going to decide if they're going to just put a stamp on this decision. He could be on a plane any day and straight to 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 the Espionage Act trial and spend the rest of his life in prison. So they actually question the U.S. side more th- thoroughly than I've heard before, and they seem to especially go into the issue of whether he can be recognized as re- as a publicist, which is a crucial issue here. So, uh, so I felt somehow after this hearing, perhaps they actually will allow him to appeal on at least some points. So this was the short version. No, I appreciate it very much, Renner, and just for some context, in terms of the communications link, nothing fucking works in Britain anymore. No, right. Nothing. No. Uh, really. And one of the things that doesn't work is the judicial system. Yeah. This is not necessarily because the judges are no good. It is because they are starved of resources, not so much at the high court level, but really across the entire system. And there are huge delays, backlogs that are impossible and implausible to counter. Yeah. So this as a side comment. In terms of what you saw and heard, this does sound fairly positive for the case. 
And I mm. wonder if either Eva or Joanne would like to comment on what Rina had to say or on the case more generally. Mm. Yeah, I think this is, it is really, we are living in general, in, 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 all, in all the world, we are living at a very dramatic uh, situation with, the, with justice. Uh, mm. You know what what happened when with the opposite of Putin, the Navalny case, which was murder in prison, and and probably in in the case of uh, Julian Assange is going to happen something terrible also because you see it's it's a I think it's paradoxical that now we have uh, much more transparency, much more uh, possibilities of uh, communication, and but the, the the whole system of justice in the world is is. It's falling down. It's, in, in, it's a deep crisis of inequity, inequity, inequality in the in, in, in justice. In some countries, you have uh, human rights. In other, not. Uh, you you can be murdered in prison. You can be uh, yeah murdered. Uh, you you can have a yeah a life uh, a life uh, penalty for for all your life to be in prison just for yeah just for communicating some some elements. So it's really dramatic. I think. How about you, Joan? <laughs> I agree absolutely, both uh, with Rune and Deva. Like the, this is a huge issue for freedom of speech and for justice. Yeah? And uh, we all know that Julian Assange was doing the job that mainstream journalism wasn't doing at the time and uh, unveiling the crimes committed uh, by the U.S. military. So he has to be punished for that. Yeah, mm. and I think that's very dangerous for all journalists um, mm. uh, because the it, uh, it forces us to engage in self-censorship or otherwise face um, important mm. consequences when we confront power. And I just read a note from the Progressive International saying what uh, Rune was mentioning, yeah, that journalists had a really difficult time to cover the proceedings. Mm. Um, mm. I think only journalists from uh, England and Wales were allowed into the room. Mm. That's what the note said. And then the problems with the with the sound, and that they have no tables to put their laptops mm. and so on. So like establishing many limitations, which adds another layer mm. um, against the uh, freedom of speech, against um, covering this uh, this problem uh, with uh, with Julian Assange. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you know, this is really a political case in the bottom. You know, this is a high level politics and. And the agreement of extradition between Britain and the U.S. don't allow extradition on political reasons. And, of course, this is also a key point because this is a highly political case. Everybody knows it. So it's just about making that point true. But Spain has actually played an interesting role here because the Spanish juridical system at least had uh, taken part in this a security company that uh, revealed that he was, uh, you know, his, his recordings, everything he did in the court embassy. And the, through that also revealed later exposure of um, the plans to kill him and, and uh, kidnap him. All these kind of scandals that should in itself have stopped the case years ago. So just to conclude, oh, sorry, Eva, go ahead. No, I I, I wanted to ask uh, Rune, what are the what hopes uh, do you have in some uh, solution for? Is there any possibility to 
for the for the hearings to finish but with uh with declining the extradition is there any possibility yeah, I, they can decline it but they can allow him to appeal to to the supreme court on the key issue of the case this is yeah. the juridical case here because uh he the, the extradition was stopped in january 2021 of one judge who said the danger for suicide yeah it will be apparent if he is allowed to to be extradited and all the appeals after that has been about that issue but if he has allowed to be uh to to to, to appeal to the supreme court the whole case or the, or the principal issue can be discussed in a more broader sense which would hmm. also be very useful for the public debate i think and were he to be extradited, the other factor is that he's an Australian citizen and yeah. the Australian government has protested against the idea of his extradition mm. uh, across party lines. There has been a deputation to the United States protesting this. And one possibility one can imagine is that were he to be extradited to the US, depending on who's the president, depending on the complexion of the State Department, mm depending on the complexion of the Justice Department. They might send him off to Australia saying, you've got to stay there the rest of your life. Mm. You'll have to have a custodial period in an Australian mm. jail, and then just quietly you can go. That's possible. Mm. Yeah. But, of course, the problem is that Australia, like Britain, is a lapdog of the United States. Mm. But we'll see, because there is a very strong bipartisan and governmental opposition in Australia, right across the parliament, to what is going on. The majority in the parliament have voted for him to be sent home to Australia. Right. So, and the prime minister. And they are close allies. How much uh, costs is it for Biden to to ignore a close ally like that? It's well, <laughs> yeah. I'm laughing because on the other side of my face, I'm thinking. The United States does what it wants because yes. these countries, like NATO, are lapdogs. Yes, yes. However, there could be serious embarrassment and there are ways in which these places just do gentlemen's agreements in what mm. used to be called smoke-filled rooms but are now yes. smartphone-filled rooms Yes, arrange things. Mm, yeah. Anyway, I'd, I'd like us to move on now, if we may, yeah. the question of Johan Galtung. And again, mm. uh, if our Spanish colleagues don't mind, to start with Rinna, because you knew this guy, you know, almost before I was born. No, just kidding. <laughs> but you knew him and you knew of his work for many years. And I should say that I've been influenced by him since I was an undergrad. So we're going back uh, 47 years to when I first read yeah. Galtung was influenced by him. So, Runa, could you tell us a little bit yeah. about your personal experience, yes. but also his contribution and importance in Norwegian life? Okay. I My, my experience started similarly as you. I read an article when I was a political science student, uh, the structural theory of imperialism. It was on blew my mind out how brilliant I thought it was. And um, uh, that was 50 years ago. But uh, in uh, in the beginning, in, in 1989, I started as a 
head of uh, information at Peace Research Institute in Oslo. And Johan Galtung founded that institute in, in 1959 and at the same time basically founded Peace Studies as an academic discipline. He's the founding father of the tradition. And, uh, of course, uh, he worked there for many years. And uh, he uh, then, Norway was too small for him, I think. And uh, uh, Norway didn't appreciate as much as uh, they should have. So he traveled the world. He is, I think he's honorary professor in 13 universities. He has been positioned in Hawaii. Uh, Dubrovnik, all over the place, and produced like 170 book, uh, 1300 scientific articles. Some of them are really, you know, iconic in peace studies. Uh, and th- therefore, he got a, a huge uh, global audience. And um, I wrote an obituary in a Norwegian newspaper a couple of days ago, and I said, for me, looking at how he was seen upon in Norway and international is quite amazing because he was kind of a uh, intellectual rock star when he traveled around. But in um, Norway, not so much. And that's for political reasons. And Norway being a small country, uh, you know, Johan Galtung was a brilliant, and he also had a big ego, one must say, and was quite arrogant. Uh, yeah. And Norway didn't appreciate uh, uh, that. And he politically, the Peace Research Institute, um, when I was there, they still had cooperation. It was my responsibility to every year to arrange a Galtung seminar, which was very popular. But the profile of the institute itself changed uh, after that. And I, I worked there, I started journalism education uh, and left after four years. And already at that time, you know, the financing was different, the profile was different. And he explicitly said uh, on one level that, you know, Rio is not a peace research institute. It's a foreign security policy. In, in. So it was a, so it, it was a chilly relations. And I don't think they have now acknowledged their historical father when he died enough really either. But what was, uh, so he, he has been uh, unpopular with the establishment. He criticized Norway's close lapdog, uh, for you to use your expression, US, very clearly. And that's not popular among Norwegian politicians because um, there's a unity around security issue, the NATO membership, etc., etc. And he just confronted that in a way that obviously made him unpopular in power circles and of course, popular among peace uh, activists, not so much about journalists, and he has been ignored for many years, and the la- latest years, 
uh, of his uh, life, he was mainly basically attacked by those who talked about him. I can come back to that in a few comments later, but my own um, way into the close cooperation in after always departed on the Institute was when I went into peace journalism studies. Uh, and he was, I say he was my mentor. The, the table that you all know about, uh, the, the way he structured uh, war journalism towards peace journalism, uh, mm. that was, uh, I think it was a very useful tool. And I, together with my, my Swedish colleagues, Stig Arne Norsted, had a project called Journalism in the New World Order with a book series on Nordicom. And in 2002, he had an article there that was, I think it was on the first really academic publication on peace journalism. Peace journalism, a challenge where he introduced the table and it, it that become a, you know, premise for me for my research for many years. And I've written many articles about peace journalism using that tool to criticize Norwegian coverage of of uh, Norwegian warfare in Afghanistan, Libya, etc. So I, but I also used opportunity to go critical into it because it's very mind blowing, but it has all obviously its weaknesses. So I used some time to discuss essays on the lack of gender perspective, uh, the lack of. Uh, also legal uh, aspects, actually. So me and my colleague Stigard Nostad made one article suggesting using discourse analysis together with this. So this has been vital for my um, academic and also teaching. We had a course in global journalism where he we used his uh, material, his thinking on, on, the, on the reading list, on one or two equations he teached, taught there himself, which was, of course, he's a brilliant lecturer and uh, analytic and polemically at the same time. He, you know, he holds an audience when he has it. So uh, when he uh, stopped... Uh, he, he, you know, he died 93 years old. So he, the last 10 years, he was, um, he was, uh, I don't think he did publish that much. But but the one thing, since you talked, asked me about the Norwegian uh, audience and uh, how they think about him, it was, uh, in 2012, it was like a game changer because he, uh, made an announcement on analyzing uh, the Jews' influence in politics in in, in U.S. etc. And he was he was the, he was uh, you know accused of being anti-Semitic. And mm-hmm. which is, if you read him, it's it's that's absolutely not correct. He it differs between. Anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism, etc. We all know that. But for those who already hated him and were critical, this was the way to really put him down. And he his weakness, 
is is arrogance, you know, and he has problems, had problems admitting when he had said something wrong, and he, he said some remark about this Sion's verse, which is a really historical pamphlet, which is used by used by anti-Semitic. And he were unclear, but you could read it and learn from it. And that stuck with him. And he was unclear about that. And he should just have said, of course, the message here is wrong. But he was never able to do that because then he was must have been apologizing for the way he talked about it in the first place. So he had this greatness and this arrogance and this brilliance. But his analytic work on peace, the basic issues, uh, peace, violence, and imperialism, I think one of my favorite books, his concept of uh, enemy images, cultural imperialism. It's so rich, his academic production. It will last forever. So, So when he died, there was mainstream media made some announcement in I wrote an article, and there are coming out latest today. I saw some more really taking him seriously and what he meant um, for you know peace journalism and peace studies. But he he he, he he's not a hero in Norway, to put it mildly. So I th- I think that's a shame. We don't acknowledge which genius we actually had among us, which is a shame. I can stop there and you can follow up with questions. That was beautiful. Thank you, Runa. Uh, Johan, I wonder if I could ask you first to respond to that and or to mention the importance that Galtung has in your own thinking and in the world of peace studies and peace journalism in the Spanish language, but also in the language of the other decadent, failed, but destructive empire that is the English language. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, well, I think it's a great loss for uh, intellectual thought in uh, in general in the social sciences, um, because as Rune mentioned, he's the founder of peace studies and also founder or co-founder of uh, peace journalism. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, uh, and I think like he has a, a an enormous amount of work. I still can learn a lot from it. I uh, I want to continue reading uh, his work. But I remember meeting him uh, around 20 years ago when I was an undergrad student at the University of Alicante. Um, uh, he was teaching a PhD course because he has worked a lot with the Instituto eh, Universitario de Desarrollo Social y Paz from the University of Alicante and also from Castellón. Those are the groups working closer with... Uh, with Johan Galton, yeah. Mm. Um, um, and I attended a PhD course, and I remember that that's something that I've kept in mind always, yeah, his eclectic approach to the social sciences. Mm. That's how, how he called it, eclectic. Eclectic mm. epistemology and sort of eclectic ontology, we could, uh, we could say, yeah. And that's important, especially in an academic context in which um, each school of thought thinks only in terms of its own references, of its own school of thought. And uh, we seem 
poets unable to engage in a dialogue of knowledges among disciplines, among um, schools of thought. And I think that's really something that we need to advance if we want to understand better how this complex world works, yeah? Um, mm. So in terms of epistemology, he was, he was speaking about combining science since Descartes, um, mm. uh, then with the humanities, with Giambattista Vico. He has an article on this too. And then with dialectics and holism, yeah? with the Tao Te Ching, um, uh, also with Buddhism, um, incorporating perspectives which are not so uh, um, uh, fashionable in uh, social sciences. Yeah, um, mm. so I think that's also brave and uh, and interesting and and important. And then in terms of reality, he was speaking. I think he was like advocating in that precise context for some form of uh, um, uh, balance between the market, the state. And possibly co-ops or other forms of uh, of organization, yeah. Mm. Um, um, and uh, um, at that time, I was reading the Communist Manifesto. I was eighteen or nineteen, so I actually challenged him, yeah. <laughs> I see Toby's uh, T-shirt mm. with uh, "What would Karl Marx do?" Yeah, I think that's uh, what it says, what it reads. Um, um, and I actually challenged him very respectfully. I enjoyed a lot his talk, but I said, maybe that's a chimera because with it, because of this natural tendency of capitalism to expand and colonize other sectors, public sectors, colonize virgin territories, um, um, colonize anything which hasn't been privatized. Yeah. Um, um, and he responded that with creativity, we can have a more human form of capitalism. And we've seen it in the past. Uh, for sure, yeah, during the Keynesian era. And possibly that can be done. There's this tendency of capitalism to absorb everything, but there's uh, public policies, there are social movements, there's the state to um, put a break and to also um, demarketize parts of uh, human life which are essential, yeah, like health, education, um, parts of the media, and so on. So I think this sort of balance with... Uh, less power for the private market and for oligopolies and so on, um, combined with other uh, forms of ownership is um, is uh, quite interesting, especially in today's context in which um, social revolution is not expected in the short term. Yeah, We, we, we cannot envision right now like a, a change to another system, perhaps in the future, but with climate change and all the challenges we're facing, we need to work within existing institutions to improve the um uh, the existing the existence and the living conditions of uh, of human beings yeah but actually related to what rune was uh, was uh, saying he responded quite harshly and i was very young yeah it's like if you creativity <laughs> then you would think that we can combine different models yeah um uh, but he was still uh, nice and unpolite yeah but uh, yeah, yeah, he was um, like uh, perhaps a little, perhaps I think for sure he was quite stubborn yeah. um, uh, and uh, and uh, and uh, and blunt in his way yeah. of uh, of speaking when uh, when somebody challenged the challenged his views. Yeah, but indeed I I learned a lot and I think this eclectic way of combining different ideas we might disagree at some points and of course there are some. Uh, and blind spots, as you were mentioning, 
um, uh, and we need to further explore and improve peace studies and peace journalism, but I think it's like a, a monumental starting point to think mm. about how to build peace and the role of the media. Sorry to interrupt with a technical problem. My Mac has real problems, so I'm changing to my iPad. So you have to allow me in there now. I'm logging on the on my iPad instead. Okay, great. Okay, yeah, Toby. Okay. Yeah, so that's what uh, that's the point I I just wanted to make, and uh, I'm sure Eva will also. Uh, provide the very interesting uh, insights. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you very much. Eva, please yeah, I can, go ahead. Uh, yeah. While... yeah, I I can offer a, um, another point of view, no more, because I, I, I do not know so in, in such a, a depth like uh, Rune and, and, and Johan. For my, in my case, uh, I met Johan uh, because he was awarded some 10 years ago uh, with a doctorate, doctorate uh, honoris causa at the Complutense University, you know. And there was a very pompous ceremony, and he gave a speech. It was, you know, in the paranymph of the university, something very... Uh, everybody was dressed with the, with the you know, this... this uh, I don't know, it's a disguise, I think, <laughs> something like this. But uh, he gave a speech which was very funny, very, very funny, because we, he defined himself as, uh, he was about, he was about 20, uh, he was about uh, 83 years old, but he defined himself as a uh, Spanish Viking, vikingo español. It, it was very, very, very funny, uh, a, a Spanish Viking. And he was speaking very well uh, uh, Spanish, a uh, good Spanish. But he was uh, explaining and telling about his life history and and the personal um, the personal um, elements which uh, drove him to to develop the the peace uh, studies perspective, and it was very nice, very beautiful to to listen to this. And then I I wrote a small post about him, and uh, he con he contacted me to to translate this post because he he liked it a lot. And of course, he was he was a, a very very important person, an author of yeah a monumental yeah author you know. But um, he was very in my case he was he was very empathetical, very very human person. And uh, with I I I can't feel like I I felt uh, the communication with him was very easy. Uh, you know, uh, Joan and me, we we have the opportunity, the the privilege to interview him last year. He was about twenty, uh, twenty, sorry, eighty, eighty-two years. So it was last year, uh, um, by the month of November, I think, or, or something like this. And he connected with us uh, by by internet, by by the by these video conferences. And when he welcomed us, he he told, uh, ¿Cómo estamos? Which is, uh, hola, ¿Cómo estamos? This is like, a, a hello, how are, how do we do? So very, it's, it's a very, it's very interesting because it's a, a very popular and easygoing manner of, of saying hello for a, a, such a, such an important person. It was very, for me, it was very, very significant that uh, he was a person who loved uh, to jump out of the academy 
and and uh, and love to communicate with uh, with normal people, with audiences, with of course media audiences, uh, and and this for me is really a. a a nice virtue because not, today we have academics. Uh, they live. Everybody lives in a in a you know in a in a, in a how do you say an ebony tower or um, I don't know how do you say ivory ivory, ivory tower. So everybody is discussing which which each other in in his uh, in his domain, and they don't like to go out to the streets and speak with people or go to the bus. You know that Toby is the same. <laughs> Toby likes also to jump out of the academy and have a, a human, um, uh, a human uh, look of, uh, at everything. And maybe this is the reason why he never, never uh, rooted in in, a, in an institution. Probably, of course, they have uh, differences with the Institute of Peace in Oslo. Uh, but also he have many. I, I know he he have many um, differences and uh, and discussions mm. with other, and he he liked it to be outside. Uh, he was something out outsider of the academy. But I think this is a virtue because a virtue because he 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 has probably the the opportunity to to live uh, more close to the active and practical part of the. Of the peace studies and the peace mediation strategies and techniques, so uh, for me it was very interesting as a as a person. I think I in my life I have I have bumped into two or three people really special, really someone which is really important in in the century, and 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 Johan was one of them. Yes, of course you you have the feeling that. This was a, a very a very huge personality, uh, someone who had a, a very wide perspective in 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 the studies. You know, uh, you, you have told it that the, how how he integrates the uh, spiritual part of the of the Western thought, but also the uh, the Asiatic part, then integrates the creativity in his focus. No, uh, he integrates the medical aspect of uh, how how. Must we be like like doctors in in social sciences? This this point of view has been lost because because the the, the first authors of, always they have this idea, you know, in the first in the in the twenty in the first um, years of the twentieth century, every thinker of the of that time was like a like a philosopher, but also like a a doctor or something like this, and he had something from this uh, from this idea. He was a, a polymath, no? How do you say a polymath? Someone who knows a lot of um, many things and and probably not in not in such a depth as as, for example, an, an specialist in a, in a niche. But he was very, you know, cosmo cosmo cosmopolitic and yeah, he was a cosmopolitan, no? And he liked to live in Spain. Because he was he he loved uh, the the you know he loved the tapas and wines and uh, and all the Mediterranean way of life no and and this was really wonderful. Marina, we've got some reverberation because of your iPhone and your iPad. Okay. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. Jimi oh, Hendrix fine. made millions of dollars out of it for white people. 
I, 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 we'll, we'll see. I'll, you have God. to switch off one of the one of the devices. I know it's difficult because we have so many of these things that are linked. But we need you to leave one of them. Yeah. yeah. I love, I love it. You know, there are still lots of white people who played on Jimi Hendrix's records who were trying to make money residually out of it, the grandchildren of his backing, his white backing bands. But um, to return to the, these themes, I think you've made an important point, uh, Professor Eva, about this contribution. If you think about the male founders of discursivity, in modernity, Marx, Engels, Simmel, Weber, Durkheim, Freud, classic founders of discursivity, and latterly Foucault, it's clear that Galtung is in that gallery Mm -hmm. of, of white male founders of discursivity in the sense that they wrote enough and of sufficient significance that it influenced everybody. And we could think of Gandhi and Tagore mm. and Sartre and de Beauvoir in that realm. And he was, of course, very inspired by Gandhi. And that was his main inspiration, I think. Yeah. Mm. I, I Actually, just wanted to... Last night, I recorded a podcast uh, with a, a very... A very inspirational scholar um, or the night before maybe, no, last night, Farah Godridge, a Zoroastrian who teaches yoga in California prisons and has just pioneered the first degree program for incarcerated people in California, in the United States actually. She's a political theorist for whom Gandhi has been a keystone, but she's moving away now. She's becoming an apostate because of his misogyny. Hmm. And it's interesting with all these founders of discursivity, there are always blind spots. There are always problems. And the question is for us, does that mean because of these questions about, for example, the massacre in Norway a few years ago and the way in which in certain interviews Galton expressed particular views, does that mean we abandon everything? No. Or not? Runa, could you comment a bit about that? You know, when he was saying the Mossad might have been behind this? Yes. Could you comment a bit on on those issues? This was some thought implied that it was so connected to Israel or something. And it it, it was, this was his weakness. He had a theory and went uh, with no basically fact-based. He, at that time, he made a fool of himself. But to admit that he made a fool of himself, that was not Johann Galtung. So he tried to talk out of it instead of just, you know, making a clear-cut position. 
And that was intellectually a weakness and a human weakness, you could say. And of course, we have none of these. We have no, 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 no. we're perfect. But Rina, I wanted to ask you (laughs) about something to do with your work with Stigana, which to me is foundational in Hmm. peace journalism. All of you are aware of the way in which peace uh, looks like the podcat Chinguri is very hungry. So in addition to giving myself wine, I have to feed the podcat. (laughs) But all of you are aware and you, Runa and Stigana, have experienced this, have suffered this. The prejudice against peace journalism as a yeah. movement, um, the prejudice that we get against this uh, in journalism itself, but also within academia, uh, and the failure to recognize the realities, the norms of war journalism. Could you talk a bit about this question of the contribution of uh, Galtun and his followers to peace journalism and the kinds of obstacles, the kinds of bigotry, the kinds of prejudice, the kinds of critique uh, that people suffer, people experience who are practitioners of this. And then I'd love to hear from Eva and Joanne uh, also uh, in terms of this question of reactions against the model, the paradigm of humans. Yes. Um, I just, I'm really sorry about the technical problem. If I disappear, I will log on 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 another. But to answer your question, uh, the the, the war journalism part in in, in the model, it's a harsh critic of mainstream media, how they cover basically all conflicts and war, and especially if your own country is involved. And we all know that mainstream journalism... Bruno, we've got big problems with connection. We can't hear you very well. You're freezing up a bit. So... We, we can't see it I think he's speaking Norwegian. So, he logged out. Yeah, he's yeah. gone. He'll come back. Maybe the connection, yes. Uh, Eva, perhaps you could address this question of the reaction that you've experienced or seen against peace journalism. And this is this might be a comment about Spain. It might be a theoretical comment. It might be about other countries. Yeah. 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 I think that you know, you know this is this expression about communism, that they say that uh, co- communism uh, had not failed. It's only that we can we have not put it into practice. Still. <laughs> <laughs> you know? oh, that's our argument. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> I think that the same happens with uh, peace journalism. You know, peace journalism is is really an ideal. It, it's really, uh, really the the, the ideal, uh, yeah, the ideal model that we have. We should should uh, follow as to yeah, as as, uh, as the journalists to become real, decent, and real, uh, real valid. But you know, 
also uh, at the same time that uh, Johann Galtung uh, and, and, and his his co-authors uh, developed the idea of peace journalists, there was a, there was the, the very big crisis in journalism. Um, uh, 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 you know, this uh, this uh, a bunch of crises. We have a financial crisis, technological crisis. We have uh, also political uh, problems, corruption. And so uh, journalists is now, you know very well, uh, Toby, because you have written a, a book about this. In last 20 years, we we we, we cannot say that journalists is, is, uh, is still the same as it was. So it is very difficult that journalists could apply or put into put in practice uh, the the main ideas of uh, peace journalists. Even if, if you know, in, in last century, in 20th century, it was very difficult to apply the the foundings of the peace journalists. But even it was much more difficult in uh, in the last 20 years because we have suffered in journalists. We have suffered a, a, a multi-crisis with many problems. Um, the profession is about to finish and to extinguish. Some authors say that we we are really it's really difficult to you know the, the, to 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 develop a, a real professional activity. Um, it is much more difficult now than than any time earlier. No, I think, and this is one of the reasons. But I think all the, the all the theory and all the ideas are really really. Clever and uh, and in that point, uh, Galton was a visionary because he knew very well. He knew from the sixties that the there were these uh, newsworthiness criteria. You know the the criteria uh, with which the journalists uh, choose uh, the subject and the and the issues that they cover, and how they are um, they tend to cover some negative and uh, massive elements. With the popular uh, or, or underdog persons, no, you know, with the, with the lower class and, and and with the population which is in in less uh, in 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 less uh, social class in, mm. in a lower social class, mm. uh, and this is this is really the Bible. We cannot deny this. And then he was he developed a lot of ideas about how to cover um, news. And how to produce a journalist that can um, uh, work psychological or social psychologically to lessen the effects of conflicts. Or so I think the theory was it is very original and very uh, very good and very useful. The problem it is that the circumstances and the and also the 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 last uh, the last uh, years. Uh, a journalist is is suffering such a turmoil of elements of problems of crisis that is really difficult to apply it. So there's a, a political economic underpinning to journalism more generally that is militating against the potential adoption of peace journalism. Runa's rejoined us, and Ava's just given us a view of some of the difficulties peace journalism confronts in her experience. Yeah. Before we go back to you, I wonder if Joanne would like to comment on some of these obstacles to peace journalism, and it could be in the Spanish context or elsewhere, because just for people outside this world to know, whereas Norway is outside the European Union, Spain inside it, both are members of NATO, 
and both are countries dedicated to imperial violence. Hmm. So, uh, Joanne. Well, first, I wanted to mention that in our interview, Eva, Eva's interview, when Eva and I interviewed Johan last year, he practiced um, love communication, we can call it, or peace communication. <laughs> he was very kind. Um, uh, he engaged in dialogue. He promoted dialogue in everyday life in a, in, in, a, in small context, yeah? So... I think we can, uh, there's peace journalism and peace communication in uh, in small contexts. And the point would be to make it bigger, yeah, um, uh, which, of course, is difficult. Um, just mentioned that uh, um, uh, we uh, we have this interview online on YouTube, on uh, ULEPIC's uh, um, YouTube channel. That's the Latin Union, Unión Latina de la Economía Política de la Información, la Comunicación y la Cultura, and we also uh, transcribed it and published it in a special issue in uh, Cuadernos de Información y Comunicación, which is the the journal, the academic journal that Eva edits. And uh, we did a monograph in tribute to Johan on communication and peace. And we have this mm -hmm. interview. We also said we they also published it in Spanish because we we asked Johan. He, if he wanted to respond in, if he wanted to do the interview in English or in Spanish, and see, and he said, "You're Spanish, so let's do it uh, in Spanish." Mm. He was uh, mm. kind, of, yeah. And now we're working on on the translation to English, also to to share it on Transcend and uh, and other media. Um, um, and so that's the monographic issue. And now we've just published a manifesto for peace media in the 21st century, based on uh, a conference, this conference we had and another conference by some other colleagues from RICAP, another academic organization, yeah? Hmm. And uh, in this regard, we also observe we our main uh, mm, reference is Johan Galtung's work, um, uh, but we also identify some uh, blind spots and we've tried to combine it with other perspectives. And... Um, one of the key issues that I think was lacking in peace, in peace journalism is the institutional and structural analysis of media companies, of media corporations and conglomerates. Yeah. I think polit the political economy of communication can help us in, in this regard. So we provide like a, a guideline of good practices that journalists can uh, tr try to implement in the short term. But we argue that if we want peace journalism to be practiced at a, in a systematic way, we need a deep reform of the media systems, both the mm. traditional media and the, the new technologies with social networks and so on. Yeah, to democratize ownership instead of oligopolies, having more media owned by journalists themselves with real public independent media, for example, but especially um, uh, co cooperatives owned by journalists and, and supported by um, by readers and by audiences. Mm. So of course, we need to think how to make them sustainable in economic terms and throughout time, eh? which is uh, of course mm. um, difficult. But we uh, we uh, try to combine the political economy with peace journalism and also with um, um, uh, independent. Uh, community and alternative media, the importance of all these uh, alternative media. In Spain, we have um, uh, several of them which are doing a fantastic job. 
Mm-hmm. Perhaps on an international level, democracy now is the paradigm of uh, good peace journalism. Yeah, they mm-hmm. they work. They are they they have resources. They uh, they have video streaming, uh, text, um, everything. Yeah. So we also need to to value the work done um, at an independent uh, level. Yeah, and then at the same time criticize what Galton um, called uh, war or conflict journalism. And that we can also call propaganda, yeah. Hmm. And uh, in terms of the challenges that peace journalism faces, is that um, uh, <clears throat> we're open to manipulations. Um, uh, so, for example, only by providing context to explain the war, the invasion of Russia against uh, Ukraine, or to explain um, uh, the Israeli uh, massacre or genocide in Palestine, if you provide context about um, colonialism, occupation, apartheid, um, ethnic, ethnic cleansing, cleansing in, uh, in Palestine, for example, or about the role of NATO and the United States against Russia in terms of their aggressiveness. Um, uh, immediately you can be, you're accused uh, falsely of supporting Putin, which have absolutely <laughs> crazy. Yeah. And that has happened uh, to me, for example. Yeah. Or in Spain, the right wing, the popular party, accuses people who demonstrate in favor of uh, of uh, peace in Palestine and uh, of stopping uh, the genocide and having a ceasefire right now. They accuse them of supporting Hamas, which is a very um, uh, ridiculous manipulation, but they have the power, they have the media. And uh, if we want to make alternative uh, um, analysis of the conflicts. We need more time. We need to provide more evidence. If you only provide some uh, um, uh, typical, uh, uh, some common places like Hamas is a terrorist group, you don't need to explain anything else. But if you explain that Israel or the United States are uh, terrorist states, then people are not used to that and you need to provide further arguments that, for example, television doesn't give you enough time yeah, with this uh, imperative for concision. Yeah? So those are some of the challenges that we face and also some of the ways to, to fight back. Um, for example, through this manifesto, which I encourage uh, our uh, listeners to, to read and sign and, uh, and share online. It's, um, it's been uh, published in comunicacionipaz.org.org. Um, uh, and it's both in English and in Spanish. And of course, we accept translations. We value very much translations to any other language. Thank you very much, uh, Joanne. Runa, uh, while you were off doing your fuzz guitar, Jimi Hendrix style, we were, <laughs> we were talking about some of the obstacles that yes. practitioners and professors of peace journalism experience. Yeah. I have actually been in conferences where you and Stigana have been criticized mm. by academics. And, of course, we know that the bourgeois media in general oppose peace journalism. Could you speak a little bit about that and some of the answers that peace journalism supporters and Galtung have given to these critiques? Yes, I hope you can hear me now. Uh, sorry for the tr- 
problems. Uh, no, we, we understand think... Norway is really from the global south, and we're lucky <laughs> to have you here in this Great. super advanced technological capital of Spain. Yeah. But but I think uh, one one of the basic um, criticism uh, started from David Law in, in BBC, who, who attacked uh, peace journalism for not being so-called objective. Because if you say peace journalism, you have taken a side. But he, I, I think here you, we should mention Jake Lynch and Annabel McAldrich. They they have wrote a textbook called Peace Journalism, and they uh, they have both journalists experience heavy, and they understood this problem with a term, and they uh, redefined the concept in a very good def definition. It's about making non-violent options available to the public. It's not to come up with a peace solution. So I think that's, uh, they have done a very good uh, job in, uh, in explaining that and using it all. Jake Lynch was a reporter in, in Sky and he tried to, in his own television, and now he's an academic, to, the, to use the system in his practical work. So I think that is very useful to to have some journalists come aboard who are, accept it and 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 uh, explain how useful it is, because it gives you. It, if you look at Johan Galtung's table and look at the peace journalism part of it, it's basically good journalism. You see the context, you see this historical background. That's it. You we give voice to all you 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 admit your own weakness, all these kind of things. But these are not very, to put it carefully, uh, among many mainstream journalists are not that humble to admit their weaknesses, and 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 they uh, rightfully so. <laughs> Uh, feels they are attacked and criticized with an idea behind the whole thing. You know, I've used the model to criticize Norwegian media and journalists, for instance, in the war in Afghanistan and especially Libya, which Norwegian media did a horrible job. Norway took part in what was, in my mind, an illegal war, dropped bomb over a country in Africa with a false, like a responsible to protect on, based on false allegations. It was a disaster. But because all media, except a few exceptions, but all politicians agreed, this very little room for criticism, and when mainstream media and and uh, uh, politicians are on the same, not good to criticism and public discourse, and then of course they attack you back when you criticize. This is how it works. 
And of course, uh, in the very recent past, or in the future, in the present, all three, we're seeing Sweden joining NATO. And our friends in Sweden, Rinna, tell us that it is impossible to find media mm. space to express a contrary view yeah. to the dominant one, which is we must join NATO. Spain, of course, has been in NATO forever, and its membership in NATO was a crucial element in allowing the continuation of a vicious fascist dictatorship mm. for decades. And all of this, we have to admit, is about the continued hegemony of the United States in military matters mm. for predominantly white countries. I think there's no other way to understand this. And the fact that these countries essentially do what the United States tells them to do. Now, what is interesting in the future, and I'd love Ava's views on this next, is what happens if Trump wins the next election, gets rid of the normal bureaucracy of the United States, and actually does withdraw from NATO. Do Spain and other countries, like Norway, like Britain, simply agree to bomb the shit out of anybody the U.S. wishes mm. if the U.S. doesn't have the quid pro quo mm -hmm. for this for that in terms of protection? Mm. So, Ava, yeah. that's a big question, and we yeah. haven't asked it before. Yeah. But I'd love your views because NATO is so crucial to Galtung's mm -hmm. points, I think. Yeah, yeah, of course. You know, you remember this, the, the this, uh, the last one of the last books of him. Uh, maybe not the last, but uh, it was some fifteen years ago about the decline of the American Empire, and he mm. was always. It was very, very interesting. The idea. Uh, he has a. He had an historical uh, perspective of all the developments of the great em empires in the world, in history, in world history. And he uh, he had the idea that um, now we are uh, under the American Empire, the, the North American Empire, and um, this empire is about to uh, uh, to uh, decompose, to 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 be uh, rotten and, and corrupted. And the last uh, the last um, events in in global uh, world um, are significant about this because. Um, um USA is losing the domain uh, of the relationship with their allies in the world. Uh, Galton always affirmed that uh, a great empire empire needs uh, lots of countries that um, work like you know like uh, like the subditos. I don't know how you just you say in English it is the the, the countries that serve to the um, subalterns. Uh, Stable terms, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Uh, they serve to the interest of the uh, of the empire, and he 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 was thinking that uh, the USA was losing the yeah the influence, but NATO is the the last opportunity for USA to uh, sustain to 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 have the, this this uh, influence this uh, domain. So they, I think that is going to be not very easy to, for example, for Donald Trump. I am I'm I'm quite sure that Donald Trump is not going if he wins the election is not going to uh, yeah to to quit the the NATO. Of course not because you know 
the real, real government in USA is NATO. It's not Donald Trump. <laughs> See, <laughs> I think that, yeah, this is Chomsky. This is not, you know, this is not uh, Galton. So, in fact, we are seeing it now in the in the Israel and Palestine conflict. No, it's the military apparatus with all the economy that uh, it has mm-hmm. with it of selling selling arms and weapons uh, to to the countries, all the weaponry uh, um, fabric and uh, and the production and all the commerce with this. This is the real, real. Uh, they they are the real decision makers. So. Probably Donald Trump is not going to leave NATO, and uh, and we will always be. But uh, Galton always thought that uh, it this is the end of a, a period, and probably I think he's he's right about this. It's the is the how do you say this is the last the last breath of a, a, a an old animal that is is decomposing. I think it is because you know China now it's very very powerful. Uh, Russia, we are seeing that Russia is is really uh, all the conflicts in Ukraine uh, is is showing that the, the power uh, that uh, that uh, still Russia has uh, of uh, of commanding the situation against Europe, against Europe, uh, against the uh, so probably. Like Israel, for example, Israel now as a country, yes, he's, he's uh, winning the massacre, but he's losing the the global uh, uh, prestige and influence. So uh, they are going to nowhere. And I think USA is the same because now the people is li- are linking the linking the yeah the the the, the, the idea uh, that uh, USA and Israel they are working for weapons uh, industry. So, so military I'd like, apparatus. I'd like Sorry to ask Joanne about this in terms of the importance of Chomsky. Then I'd like to go to Runa because, hmm. of course, Norway only became independent a little over a century ago. You and I were together when we celebrated the centenary of Norway's independence. To think about the experience of Norway as a subaltern subject hmm. in the context of empires in run by Sweden and Denmark, if we can use modern <clears throat> states. So, Joanne, uh, before that, before we go to talk about Norwegian experiences of empire, could you tell us a little bit about perhaps how you see the intersection of the contributions of Chomsky and Galtung that Eva just mentioned? I think uh, you can find many overlaps and many points in common. Um, between Dalton's work and Chomsky's work. Both of them have opposed the wars, um, different wars since the 1960s, essentially, um, since the war in Vietnam. Um, uh, and I think that they, both of them have worked always thinking about um, a civil society, the victims, and finding peaceful, negotiated, diplomatic solutions. Yeah, What Chomsky was saying with regards to Ukraine is if we really care about Ukrainian people, we need at least to think about the um, context and the causes of the of the invasion, yeah, and and the reasons that uh, that can be the underlying roots, as uh, Galton put it, be behind the the invasion, yeah, without um, um justifying um uh, the invasion, which is absolutely criminal. And brutal, as, as Chomsky put it, yeah. But once that is said, which is obvious, we need to understand 
what can we do to improve um, the geopolitical uh, sphere um, to make it more fair so that tensions are reduced and we can move towards uh, peace, yeah? Um, and the same with regards to, to China, yeah? Um, uh, uh, we can uh, choose to have uh, um, a confrontational approach with China as we've had with Russia, or we can try to engage in dialogue, which is also something that Galtung has uh, advocated for, yeah? Um, uh, and see what's better for the common good. Uh, war is always the, the worst case scenario. Um, uh, and we need to, to listen to the people who suffer. Um, and as Gorbachev said, there was an opportunity to build a common home for Russia and, and Europe um, with linguistic policies, with economic um, exchanges, with commerce. Of course, now it seems almost impossible. But you can choose confrontation and escalation going forward towards more deaths, or you can choose to um, uh, negotiate as it has happened in the past and find peaceful uh, solutions. That's uh, the, the options that we have. And Chomsky obviously advocates for uh, finding, uh, looking for, for peace if we really care about the victims. Thank you so much, Joanne. That's a wonderfully insightful remark. Rina, I wonder if you could, first of all, talk about Norway's geopolitical situation as a post-colonial country, but also perhaps comment on what uh, Professors Eva and Joanne have said with reference to Chomsky and Galton. Yes. Uh, you know, Norwegian history is a history of, you know, being uh, in Forced union first with Denmark for 300 years, and then uh, in in uh, with Sweden um, after the Napoleon War, Norway was like a, uh, given over from Denmark to Sweden, <laughs> and we became independent in 1905. So a pretty young nation, and yeah. I think that uh, has uh, made a significant cultural impact of the way Norwegian traditionally has been thinking about independence and also of course uh, being occupied by the Germans for five years so the so the idea of independence is strongly rooted historically I would say uh, of course that has been uh, challenged when we are being in the in the NATO, but one sign of that that there still is some left of that uh, anti-colonial thinking and urge for independence is that Norway said to a referendum against the elite political elite and all elite newspaper politicians in a referendum to become an EU member first in 1972 and then in 1994. One can discuss the wisdom of this, and we have discussed this before, Toby, but uh, the point here is not whether it's uh, EU, but, but this urge to keep out of big power dominance. Of course, that has been challenged now since we are been in NATO and especially after the NATO 
out of area uh, policy from 1999, where basically it stopped to be a defense alliance for Europe and being a tool for U.S. Uh, battle for hegemony, which is, of course, uh, is a sad thing that this urge for independence hasn't stopped that. And uh, it has been even worse now after uh, what's happening in Ukraine. And uh, Norway has now, even though we have NATO member, not allowed NATO bases on Norwegian soils, which they now have. They don't call it bases, but in all practical terms, it is. So this is a really a sad development from that, I would say, proud tradition to urge for, as a small country, for independence. So uh, I think um, there's a lot of things going on in, 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 in Nordic country now with, with Finland traditionally being you know, really between the old Soviet Union and 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 uh, and NATO, try to keep a balance. Now they are suddenly a loyal NATO member. Not anymore. Sweden, yeah. and it, it happens very fast. Yeah, and that affects the, of course, even stronger the the opinion in Norway also. So that was the short version of that. You know, I I think Chomsky and Galtung are uh, supplementing each other in a very good way. I, I they are both, of course, agree on on uh, on all the basic issues, but the, their, their vocabulary is uh, a bit different. But if you look at Chomsky's approach to worthy and unworthy victims. You find this, the similar things in Galtung's table for war and peace journalism, not in the, those words, but in 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 the table you said you recognize the peace journalism, recognize weakness on your own side, and criticize uh, your own uh, position. The war journalism is the blame game, uh, who just blame the others with enemy images. I think the concept of worthy and unworthy victims are more or less the same. So I think they are supplement each other in a very good world. So, so let's hope we can keep Chomsky for a bit longer. He's a very old man as well. Yeah. Too. When Rinna was just talking, Eva, Joanne and I were nodding in concert. I just have one more question for all of you and then because you all have partners and real lives, whereas in my case, the cats <laughs> and I are just going to watch vigilante U.S. movies <laughs> with violence and eat pre-prepared meals because, you know, that's the kind of richness that is my world. And my, my last question for Eva and Joanne is Spain in all of this. We've just discussed the frightening but understandable in some ways attraction of for Finland and NATO, and sorry, NATO, as if it were a country, the attraction for Finland and Sweden joining NATO 
and the way in which Norway has given up its relative autonomy. So my last question for Joanna and Eva is the situation of Spain in NATO today from a Galtung-style perspective. And then I'd, I'd love for Runa to finish our conversation talking as frankly as you wish about Galtung and you. Hmm. So first uh, Eva and then Joanne about Spain and NATO. Just before I arrived here, thanks to Eva and our colleague Paula for my wonderful experience of the Spanish immigration system and the incredible support for independent thought that uh, Pendejo Central offers. So um, tell us a little bit about this issue, because just before I arrived here, NATO had its big event in Spain, celebrated by the Spanish bourgeois media, celebrated by the government. What is the situation now in the relationship between NATO and Spain, a country that I deeply love and that, of course, loves me back? <laughs> well, you know, uh, you know, Spain and, and USA, Joan uh, probably knows much better than me, but because he's an expert in, 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 in political economy and international political economy, I think. But uh, as I, as far as I know, uh, Spain was uh, always a very, a very um, uh, close partner to USA. Uh, even, uh, even after the after the war of Cuba, we, in which uh, Spain was was opposing uh, USA for the colony of Cuba, uh, then in 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 few years few years uh, after this conflict spain started a, a very strange relation with the uh, usa with, and and of course uh, then with nato with nato and uh, and this relation during the dictatorship of franco was uh, was something underlying the the the, the political official um, because uh, officially we were always with the dictator uh, franco we were um, considered as a, a, a country uh, not de not democratic. So, but in fact, we have many many agreements with USA, and Spain had always have a, a close relationship. Um, and for this, we have also, like in Norway, we have uh, in uh, I, I remember in the sixties and seventies, the there were uh, many uh, many military bases uh, in Andalusia. Uh, secret or almost secret, which is Rota and in 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 Jerez and and so um, Spain was always as uh, as it has a very special uh, geopolitical uh, position uh, or or, or um, uh, place. It is very important because it's in, in the Mediterranean. It's close to the Morocco place and uh, close to the all this. Uh, so uh, when the socialists in in the eighties uh, started to promote the the inclusion of the country in the NATO, it was something that it, it had a lot of uh, uh, history underlying history, and the and the powers that be uh, have always always um, prepared to uh, legalize a situation that that was always the same, always the same. It is. And, and it is also uh, related with the um, pre precedent uh, discussion we had, because the military aspect, the, the economic military aspect, it is it is the determinant one. It is the factor that produces at, at the at the end of the things the 
you know, the partnership between the countries. And now, uh, even if, if NATO, for example, and Israel, they are asking for a, a much more closer collaborative uh, role for Spain in, in all the in, in all the conflicts in the world. Uh, yeah, we we still have a very ambiguous ambiguous position, you know, ambiguous ambiguity, because uh, President Sanchez now, uh, as we have uh, traditionally we have a close relation with uh, Palestine, because always here there were uh, Palestine refugees and and we have a very close relation uh, because we feel somehow very. Uh, very close to all the Mediterranean Arabic countries because culturally we have a, a, a very strong link. And so we are not following exactly the political uh, line that uh, USA wants to do for Spain to follow. Uh, and this is this is producing some yeah declarations against and and for you know some subtle uh, um, problems no but <laughs> but in any case uh, yeah I think I think Spain is is something like um, yeah is is like a um, lapdog of uh, of USA still <laughs> still and this is my this is my idea. Well, thank you so much, Prof. And. One of the things to realize for listeners, depending on where you are, and we, there's no country that's a majority of listeners, right? There's a plurality in the Anglo-Saxon world, but no country has more than 20% of listeners to the podcast. One of the goals of the United States for the last 50 years, but increasingly so now, is to cut off supply lines to natural resources for its whatever its imagined enemy is, and that's always been Russia, and really for 80 years, China as well. So Spain, as you say, is absolutely crucial to this in terms of preventing natural resources in Africa being available to China or the United States. And as Runa indicates in terms of the natural resources, especially in Norway and Sweden, keeping those away from the Russians. So I think this is really crucial. Uh, Joanne, I'd like to ask you to comment, if you wish, about what Eva said about Spain's role in U.S. imperialism. And then perhaps we can conclude with Runa's thoughts about these issues and about Galtung himself. Yeah, I uh, I agree with what Eva said, and I would like uh, just to add that it's also important to um, uh, the role of social movements and anti-war movements. Yeah, in the eighties, when the Socialist Party and Felipe González um, uh, joined NATO, made Spain join NATO, there was a strong anti-NATO movement and a strong anti-nuclear movement also. Um, uh, then it. Several decades later, Afnar went to war, supporting George Bush um, and Tony Blair, and only Poland um, also supported the invasion, while Germany and France and all the other countries were opposing. And uh, there were very massive demonstrations, possibly some of the most important demonstrations worldwide. Yeah. Um, uh, that had an electoral cost for the Popular Party, which eventually lost uh, the election. And then let's also remember that the next president, uh, Jose Luis Rodriguez Zapatero, um, uh, retired the, the troops from, uh, uh, fr I think, from Iraq or from Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, 
And that was also because of popular pressure. And if you need votes and you see that your uh, target audience thinks um, uh, is mobilized at this opposing war, then uh, there's a pressure for you to to make decisions in favor of, of peace. Right now, um, there have been the many demonstrations in favor of peace in, uh, in Israel and Palestine, but the, the anti-war movement seems a little bit weaker than in the, in the past. Yeah. Um, uh, but who knows? That's always been there, and Spanish people have a tendency towards peace and towards collaboration and building community. So that's always a hope that can act as a break against the uh, Spanish Serbians towards the United States and, as Eva was mentioning, the military-industrial complex, or we can say the military-industrial media technology complex also, yeah? Mm-hmm. Thank you, Joanne. And uh, um, I think your emphasis on social movements is incredibly important because whenever we engage in discussions driven by international political economy and geopolitics, It just feels so fucking demoralizing, right? But it's also inaccurate in that it fails to encompass and appreciate the level of resistance to these dominant logics that we get, despite bourgeois media prejudices, despite governmental and corporate appetites for killing. So I really appreciate that. Runa, I'm hoping we can finish with you in terms of some reflections on Jan Galtung, that mm. may be personal, but also theoretical, political, etc. Yes, uh, I, you know, I think uh, he will, he will always be one of those I think who inspired me most intellectually. His, you know, brightness and his clarity, analytical framework, is so systematic. And also eclectic in some way, and his ability to grasp a new conflict, a new situation, put it in a context, it's it's very inspiring. Uh, he was a big man, and he had also big thoughts about himself, justifiedly enough, <laughs> you could say. <laughs> He knew his value, but that made him also sometimes quite sympathetic. And when he, you know he he could be very arrogant, nervous students who ask a, perhaps a bit naive question. He had no tolerance for those kind of things. Oh, and not to speak if he was criticized. By, by somebody who with less, so that that I I really you know dislike that side of him. He 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 could have been more generous, I think. And on the personal level, I when I he when you were close with him, it's you had the feeling that you were not equals who cooperated. <laughs> uh, you were, you were some sort of feeling that you should, you know, serve his purpose uh, somehow. And, uh, you know, he built a huge network through this organization called Transcend, which was a brilliant academic network 
who 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 was it's still you can go on the net it's still has lot of resources putting things available for students the, the courses and things like that but i've joined there for a while but at one point i say you know because when you joined you were expected to support his efforts and his project i got that feeling and you in the end ask okay what's in it for me <laughs> uh, i perhaps i can use my resources also so i i so at least so like i would say some 15 years ago i just you know stopped having that close contact because you know i think it was useful but enough is enough and he got older and all his weakest side when you're getting older are <laughs> being more obviously. So the last, you know, 15 years, I have very little contact with him at all. And then he got into the, all these quarrels and his intellectual project was, I mentioned this example with, with, uh, with uh, not having a clear stand on, on, Really anti-Semitic, even though he, of course, when you read him, he's not not in that category. But he, he grew into some kind of nearly conspiracy theory, I, I would say, sometimes. We, we, because he did less empirical work himself. I think that was part of it. So I lost interest in him in the last, you know, because of this. But his his main works, they will live forever. And his, his uh, I think these are universal values, uh, methodology to approach uh, peace and war issue. Also, we haven't mentioned that he also took part in mediating a lot of conflict personally. So yeah. he learned as he speaked, so to speak. He he lived as he, he learned. Uh, so I have I will always admire him, have respect for him, but well, now that he's dead, uh, we just have to cherish his memory and use his work for new generations. That's beautifully put, Rina. Thank you so much, and I think you're profile of him, your experience of him is so valuable. Nobody who lived as long as he did and wrote about as many topics as he did can be as pure of heart, mind <laughs> and production as, for example, we all are. <laughs> In all seriousness, <laughs> yeah, so... has been a yeah. wonderful experience for me. Uh, I've been friends with Runa for 25 years since we met actually in Spain. In Barcelona. In Barcelona. In ah. Barcelona. And formed a joint front against US imperialism in Afghanistan with ah. Rick Maxwell. Mm. Uh, and Rina supported me when a stooge from the Swedish war school criticized me for not being <laughs> even-handed. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember this, Rina? Yeah, <laughs> And I've been friends with Joanne for 
I think, 12 years since we met drinking outside a pub in London. And I've been friends with Ava for much less time, but we actually met on Zoom, I think. Ah, yeah, it is true, yes. Some three years ago. Only three three or four years ago. But whether it's been 25 years or 12 years or three years, your people I've learned an immense amount from. And I'm forever in your collective and individual debt. Mm. I think we all recognize the value of Galtung. Unlike all of you, I never met him. But Mm. like you, he's had an influence on me, in my case, as in Runa's, almost for 50 years, even though I was, you know, minus 20, 50 years Mm. ago. Mm. And uh, I've really appreciated this opportunity to pay tribute to his work, to recognize some of the problems in his persona and in his later utterances, not all of them, but some, to draw these important connections with people like Noam Chomsky and to see that his contribution both to peace studies and to peace journalism, really we can't even think of those syntams without reference Ooh. to Galtung, has been immense. Uh, and as I say, I've learned more than I can say from each of you, both in conversations and in your published work, and the same applies to Galtung. So thank you very, very much to all three. Thank you very thank much, you, Toby. You, Toby, for this opportunity. It was very nice. This, I think, this is a kind of homage to Johan Galtung, a living, a living homage. This is mm. very good. Oh, long live uh, Galtung and, and his work. That's yeah. it. Yeah.